Uh, it is Valentine's Day. Um, we were originally going to look at this last week, but there was a snowstorm, if you all remember. And so we punted, and, you know, here we are this week. And as I was reflecting on this last night, it just sort of dawned on me, there's maybe no better passage for us to read uh, on Valentine's Day than John 3.16 and following. It pretty much is God's Valentine Day card written to you. And so what I want to do is, like, open it and read it. So let's do that now. There's some, there's some handouts uh, that have the scripture on it for you. We'll also put it up here. Read from my mouth. Uh, John 3.16, yeah, 3.16 through 21. Okay. This is Valentine, day card to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let me pray for a second. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us your son, for sending your, for giving us your word. I pray by your spirit you would help us to understand it um, and rightly apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you think of this passage that we've just read um, as a Valentine's Day card, there really are two sides to it. Sort of side one, you need help. And side two, God's saying, I'm here for you. So aside, one of the card, the world is broken and is in need of saving. And side two, Jesus has come to save it uh, and to save you. But let's start sort of with the dark side, or side number one. The world is broken uh, and it's in need of saving. See, in verse 17 of the passage uh, that we're looking at, We are told that God sent his son into the world. God's son did not come into the world because he needed a vacation. God's son entered into the world because it needed rescue. It needed saving. In the beginning, at the very beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of all things, God made a good and beautiful world. And he made us, men and women, in his image. The picture that is painted for us in Genesis 1 and 2 is of a world full of color and teeming with life. That picture stands in very sharp contrast to what we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Right? In verse 19, the world is described as darkness and as its people preferring it that way. We love the darkness and flee the light, lest our evil deeds get exposed by the light. Right? This picture painted in John 3 is very different right, from the first one we see painted in Genesis 1 and 2. Which is to say that something has happened. Right? Something has gone awfully wrong. God's good and beautiful world 
now stands broken and in need of rescue, right? needing saving. And this is an important first point to make, and it's right there before you, right? The world is broken, and it's in need of saving. But claiming that the world is broken and in need of saving is actually a fairly radical thing to say. It's radical because only things that are designed can break. Right? To call something broken is the same thing as saying it's not working right. Uh, it's not doing what it was designed to do. Right? Take my iPhone, uh, for example. Right? This device did not spring into existence on its own. It was made, right? It was designed. Someone named Steve Jobs made and designed this device to make phone calls, send texts, and take selfies. And if the iPhone's not doing any one of those three things, it's broken. Why? Because it's not working right. An iPhone that can't make phone calls, send texts, or take selfies is not doing what it was designed to do. This is true really across the board. If your watch only tells time accurately two times a day, it's not working. It's not doing what it was designed to do. It's broken. If your car doesn't stop when you push the brakes, right, it's broken. It's not doing what it was designed to do. Right, there are a million and one examples of this. But do you see where all of this is going In order to believe that the world is broken, you need to believe that it was made. Only things that are designed can break. And this means that if you want to say that the world is broken, you can't be an atheist, at least not philosophically, or with some sort of intellectual integrity. And why? Well, the reason's fairly simple. Atheists deny the existence of God. If there is no God, there is no designer, and thus there's no design. If the world has no design, say has no point, it has no purpose, then there is nothing to break. The world is what it is. It's not right. It's not wrong. It just is. You say violent? Yeah. Cruel? Maybe. But broken? No, it can't be broken, so don't try to fix it. An atheist cannot say the world is broken, but neither can a pantheist. A pantheist is someone who believes that God is in everything and that is everything. Like right now, a pantheist would say that it appears that we're all individuals, right? You and you and you and you, that we're all distinct from one another, distinct from God, distinct from the world around us. But a pantheist would say that's just an illusion, right? Everything is one. Uh, All is God. When a wave, for example, crashes into a rock, sea spray is created. And for a second, there are little droplets of water suspended in the air. And for a moment, it appears that those drops of water are distinct from one another, distinct from the other drops of water and distinct from the ocean all around. But one second later, those droplets are absorbed back into the ocean. And that, says the pantheist, is what we are all like, and that is what all of life is like. Today we are drops of water, but tomorrow we are ocean. 
It's all ocean all the time, which is to say it's all God all the time. And if it's all God all the time, it's all all right. The world may appear broken to you, but that's all that it is, an appearance, an illusion, a perspective. Stop trying to see the world as broken and instead try to see it as one. See it as God. In other words, don't change the world, change your mind. My question for you is, what kind of world did you wake up in today? Is it all all right? Or do you sense that something is wrong? Not the way it's supposed to be. Falling in love with Megan. You know, holding my daughter Willa and my arms before I put her into bed. Taking that first sip of like a perfectly made coffee. And this really did happen. Uh, Sitting in the snow, watching the sunrise on a mountaintop, smelling pine and sitting next to a moose. Right? There are moments in life when everything just feels right. You just say yes. Right? It's good. But then there are other moments. Watching the Twin Towers fall. Watching a mother heave over her lifeless child as she pulls him or her out of the rubble after a terrorist attack. Seeing pictures of elephants rotting in sun because they've been poached murdered simply for their tusks. Or hearing stories of kids who've been abused by people who've been entrusted to take care of them. Right? There are moments like these when something wells up within me and wells up within you. Right? A giant no, like reverberating from within. This is not right. right? It was not supposed to be this way. That is a Christian understanding of things. Christians believe that this is the world you woke up in today. That the reason why you see and experience goodness and beauty in this world is because God made a good and beautiful world in the beginning. But the reason why it is so painfully and blatantly broken is because of sin. That it is wrong. It's not right. And if you believe this, either you are a Christian or you are more Christian in your thinking than you might think, than you might realize. This is side number one of this card, okay? The world is broken, and it needs saving. But that's not the only thing that we see in John three sixteen through 21. There is a side number two, a solution. There's hope. A person. Right? God loves us so much that He has given us His only Son. Right? Jesus is God's love gift to the world. A Valentine's Day present, wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. It's maybe the best gift you and I will ever receive. The world is broken and it's in need of saving, but God has given us someone who can fix it. Indeed, who has, and who will finish what he started. Right? To use the language of the creed, 
I believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. He is the promised one, the one sent from heaven, and the one we must believe and receive, the one we must follow. Jesus is our one and only Savior. He's the Christ. He's the one we've been promised. Right? If everything is great in Genesis 1 and 2, everything falls apart one chapter later in Genesis 3. Okay, the devil, disguised as a serpent, invades planet Earth and convinces mankind to reject God. We buy the lie that God is not good, that he's trying to withhold good things from us, that he can't be trusted, that he doesn't love us, that he's stingy, that our lives are better off without him. We buy this lie. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. But this is not the end of the story. As things are falling apart in real time, God asks questions. Where are you? And what have you done? But he also wages war. He doesn't wage war against us. He wages war against the devil. The very first promise that is recorded in the Bible is a verse you should underline, highlight. It's Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is God swearing to the devil, but loud enough for us to hear, it's on. It's war. It reads, I I have put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, friends, you may have won the battle, but you will most certainly lose this war because someday a child, right, an offspring of Eve is going to come who is going to crush your head, but is going to get wounded in the process. And the rest of the Bible is the unpacking of this promise. What child is this? It's the promise that sets the whole thing into motion. Who is the promised one? Who is this child of Eve who's going to come, who's going to defeat the devil, who's going to repair our broken world? Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Well, we know from Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah is going to be a child of Eve. He's going to be a human being. But God gets even more specific. Right From this giant family tree that is the human race, God says it's going to come from one particular branch. The Messiah is going to be a child of Eve, but more specifically, from the line of Seth, her, her third son. He's going to be Seth's great-great-grandson. It's going to come from the seed of Abraham, and then of Isaac, and then of Jacob. And then the scope narrows even more. Of Jacob's 12 sons, he's going to come from the line of Judah, from the line of Jesse, from the lineage of King David. And it's at this point in the biblical narrative that things take a remarkable twist. God promises to David that not only will the Christ be a king from his land, but that his kingdom will last forever. To the prophet Isaiah, God reveals that the Christ will be a light for the nations. 
who will open the eyes of the blind as well as free prisoners from their dungeons of darkness. That's Isaiah 42. Flipping through the pages of Scripture, the portrait of the coming Christ comes into sharper and sharper focus and relief. He's going to be a a, a wonderful counselor. He's going to be a wise teacher, a suffering servant. And then comes the bombshell of all bombshells, God says the Messiah is going to be none other than God himself. Ezekiel 34, God says, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will seek them out and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other Savior. Look, if you all are still tracking with me, the message of the Bible is that the world is broken and it needs saving, and that the one who is going to save the world is going to be a human being, a child of Eve, and also Strangely, mysteriously, beautifully, right? God himself. Like, I know it sounds strange, and I know it sounds mysterious and weird, but it is also beautiful and intriguing. Kind of like one of Alan's magic tricks in the back, right? His magic tricks that simultaneously blow your mind, but also are rational, right? There is a hidden logic to them. They do make sense, even as we are befuddled and bewildered and amazed. This all brings us here to Jesus. Who is he? Well, according to this text, John 3.16 and many others, he's the Christ. He's the long-awaited one, the one we've been promised, the child of Genesis 3.15. He is the child who is born of a woman and, as promised, God himself, right? God in the flesh. And where am I getting that from the text? Well, look at verses 16 and 17 with me. This brings us to sort of part two, right? Jesus is the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. Right? 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Christians believe that the Creator stepped into the creation. That the playwright just entered into the play. Jesus is the King, right, who stepped onto the courts. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Right? He's the king who took to the courts. Right here is a picture of LeBron James. He's not a man who needs much introduction. He is in the whole state of Ohio, a hero. Right? Not just Cleveland. Izzy tells me it's in Cincinnati too. Right? This guy is a hero. They know him as King James or simply the king for short. He's arguably the best basketball player of our generation, okay? The king, 
is a three-time NBA champion, three times NBA Finals MVP, four times the NBA's most valuable player. He has three Olympic medals, two of them gold. ESPN and Sports Illustrated have ranked him the best player in the NBA since 2011, year after year after year. If you go online, stat after stat backs this up. Okay? Well, not only is LeBron James the greatest basketball player of our generation, a.k.a. the king, he's also a dad. All right? A dad who coaches his son's basketball team. This right here is the king coaching one of those basketball games. And if he looks a little stressed out in this picture, you can't really tell. It's a little bit grainy, but he's stressed out in this picture. The reason why is that his kids are getting demolished on the basketball court, right? His team, his son, is taking a beating. And all that this king can do is stand on the sidelines and shout. When this king sees his kids losing, his strength and his skill and his power don't really count for all that much. All he can do is shout. Well, no offense to LeBron, but we've got a better king than this. Okay, when our king sees his kings losing, he doesn't just shout at us from the sidelines. He doesn't just scream at us, hustle, 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 run faster, shoot straighter, pick up the game. When God sees us, his kids taking a beating, he picks up a jersey, he puts it on, and then he steps onto the court. The Son of God takes on flesh, and he becomes like one of us. Right? King Jesus takes to the courts. And on the courts, King Jesus is flawless. He's faster than Russell Westbrook. He can shoot better than Chef Curry. Right? Wearing our jersey, taking on human flesh, King Jesus lives a perfect and sinless life. His percentage in and out of the paint is 100%. Right? His shoulders hurt from carrying our team to victory. He trounces our opponents, sin, Satan, and death itself. But not only does our king carry this team to victory, his shoulders hurt from also carrying the cross. Because King Jesus does everything on the courts that we're supposed to do but fail at, right? Like he does it all. But what's more, he pays the price for every one of our proverbial dropped balls, turnovers, and flagrant fouls. Right? He pays the price for those too. He really does it all. He is the best. He's the king. And this is the kind of king that we have in Jesus. A king who takes to the courts. The son of God who left heaven and came to earth. Not to condemn the world, but to save it. Not to crush us, but to carry us. Right? The human race to victory. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the promised one. He's the Son of God, the heaven-sent one who took to the courts. But finally, he is the Lord, which is to say he's the one we must believe in and receive for our salvation. When Christians say that Jesus is the Lord, they're not just saying that he is 
Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All right, they're not just saying that he is divine. That's already implied when we call him the Son of God. Right, the Greek word for Lord is kurios, which means master, owner. Okay? To confess Jesus is Lord is to confess that Jesus is the boss. Right? He's in charge. What he says stands. When he says come, we follow. The Bible uses other imagery to illustrate this idea. It says, you all, myself included, we're sheep. And he's the good shepherd. Who's controlling that sort of situation? It's obvious. It's not the sheep. You know, what John 3.16 makes clear and what the creed implies is that whether you think of this as obeying your shepherd's call or coming to the light, as in verses 20 and 21, what we need to do is we need to listen to our Lord. We need to move towards him, and we need to believe him and receive him and follow him. Believing Jesus in John 3 is more than knowing right things about him. Believing in Jesus, as we discussed in week one of our series, is to receive Jesus. To believe Jesus means to be committed to him, to put your faith and trust in him, right? To follow. Faith, as I mentioned to you, is the empty hands that receives what God has freely offered us in Jesus. Christ is the... Jesus is the Christ and the King who has come to fix our broken world and to fix our messed up lives and to make us right with God. Have you received, right, his mercy? Right? Have you received this grace, this gift? Do you believe in his name? I don't do it very often. But if you are convinced um, that the world needs saving and that you need saving, and that Jesus is the one that you need. There's no sense in putting this off. Right? You ought to receive him tonight. And Valentine's Day is about as good as a day as you'll ever get. Right? To receive this one who loves you. Receiving and believing Jesus is like the easiest and hardest thing to do. It's hard because you've got to swallow your pride. You've got to admit that you need help. And you've got to relinquish control. To believe, right, to receive Jesus is to admit that you are not the Lord and not the Lord of your life, but that Jesus is and ought to be. It means that you've got to get out of the driver's seat and you need to move the back. And you need to let him drive this car and set your course. And this is hard. But this is also the easiest thing in the world to do. Because all you need to do is ask. And asking Jesus to be the Lord of your life sounds something like, Jesus, I am a sinner who needs saving. Have mercy on me. Teach me and mold me and guide me 
until we meet face to face. Amen. It's that simple. And if that is something that you want to pray, let me know. Or that you just prayed. I'd be my great joy to welcome you into God's family and talk to you about what the next steps are in faith. But for those of you who are already following Jesus, where do you need help and encouragement in your Christian walk? Do you need help trusting his promises, that he really is the Christ? Are you still wowed, right, by his beauty and by the awesomeness of this king, right, who, like, puts on a jersey and, like, wins the game for us? Like, are you still wowed by that, or has that fallen flat in your life? Like, has your worship become sort of cold and stale? What parts of your life are you still sort of cordoning off from Jesus, still trying to be Lord over What part of your life do you need to entrust to Jesus more and more? As I've preached to you many times, the Christian life is a journey. So where are you on this journey? At what stage are you at? Where do you sense Jesus is leading you? You I would love to carry on these conversations one-on-one, right, in Bible study, over coffee, that perfectly delicious coffee, um, or over lunch. We're here for you. We're doing what we do tonight because we really believe what John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world, which is to say God so loved you that he gave us his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus really is God's valentine to the world. So let's receive him with joy today. Let's pray.